Hello and welcome to episode number 426 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I am Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Martha Wells. Martha Wells is the author of The Murderbot Diaries, one of my absolute favorite discoveries this year. Uh, my inner 13-year-old barely kept it together during this interview. We talk about Murderbot, romance, science fiction, what she's obsessed with, like I'm obsessed with Murderbot. I do want to make an important note here. We take a deep dive into the plot of the four Murderbot Diary novellas and the novel Network Effect. So if you haven't read the series and you want to, this may spoil some plot points. We also talk about feelings and relationships and things Murderbot would really prefer we not talk about. I want to say thank you to Pamela, Malia, C. Howard, Hannah, Stacy, Angie, and many others for the questions and excitement about this interview. This is probably an episode that I am more excited than normal to bring to you because doing it and having the opportunity to talk to Martha Wells completely made my year, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. She recommends a lot of books because she's awesome, so I will have a ton of links in the show notes as well at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And if you by chance hear that rattling noise in the background, Wilbur has decided, as usual, that when I am recording, it is snack time. So he suggests that you get a snack because he is having one right now. This episode is brought to you by Dipsy. We have talked a lot on this podcast about how reading can be difficult when your brain is really stressed. That's certainly true for me. And it can be hard to remember to take time to focus on yourself. I tell myself all the time, Sarah, you can't pour from an empty cup. But your joy and pleasure are so important right now, especially now. Put your well-being first with Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories and wellness sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get in touch with yourself. The stories are relatable and immersive. You feel like you're right there and there's something for everyone, whoever and whatever you're into. The wellness sessions can help you unlock new confidence and heighten intimacy with your partner. They add new stories every week so you never get bored. It's an intimate way to use narratives to take care of yourself. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash trashybooks. That's a 30-day free trial when you go to dipseastories.com slash trashybooks, dipseastories.com slash trashybooks. I have a compliment in this episode. I love doing these. To Melissa R., you are the human personification of a hot bowl of soup, warm bread fresh from the oven, perfect cookies with the right balance of crisp and chewy, and everything kind and comforting. If you would like a compliment of your very own, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 and keep the show going every week. I so appreciate the Patreon community, especially when they help me develop interviews and conversations like this one. So if you'd like to support the show, please have a look, patreon.com slash smartbitches. This episode is also brought to you by Ritual, which is a daily multivitamin that was obsessively researched for women. It's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free. All of the sources for the nine nutrients inside are provided for you to read and research on your own. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, which is why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. 
Here is a neat science that I learned too. Ritual uses vegan algal oil instead of fish oil, which is made using fermented microalgae and leaves minimal environmental contamination. I did not know that was a thing. I really like that Ritual is easy, that a new bottle arrives when I finish the old one, and I really like the fact that I know what's in the capsule and why it's in there. And the capsules are transparent too, it's kind of cool. I also like that the source of each part of the multivitamin is in the packaging, and also, it never makes me nauseated. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com forward slash Sarah, that's S-A-R-A-H, to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash Sarah. As I mentioned, Martha Wells recommends an absolute metric ton of books, and you'll find them in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Stay tuned afterward for a truly awful joke. But now let's get started with my interview with Martha Wells. I'm Martha Wells. I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, I've been writing since about 1993 uh, professionally, and I've done the Murderbot Diaries most recently and the Books of the Raxura and a bunch of other fantasy science fiction novels uh, and media tie-ins. Thank you so much for the Murderbot series. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I enjoy um, writing it. Uh, Murderbot is my sanctuary moon. When oh. things are crappy, I just go reread it. That really makes me so happy. Because um, when I was a kid, I relied on a lot of books and TV for that. And it just really, it just really makes me happy to know that people are doing that with my work. I have probably read the series since March when the quarantine started and Tor gave away the first four novellas in an anticipation of network effect. I think I have read it six times. Oh, wow. I have listened to it. I have listened to it twice, maybe. Um, seriously, I have read it about as often as Murderbot has watched Sanctuary Moon. Like it is the place I sink into. So whenever the character talks about sinking into media, I'm like, yes, right there with you. Uh Uh-huh. Let's do this. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. Thank you so much for the series. Like I can't even tell you. What's interesting is I'm a, I'm a romance blogger and reviewer, and I am very firmly located in the world of romance, but I know so many romance fans who love this series, like, like as much as I do. And I've asked myself, okay, why is this working on me? There are some overlaps between science fiction and fantasy and romance. There's a lot of uh, trope overlaps, but I I know there's no active romance in the story, except between, I think, this is my theory, Murderbot and Autonomy, that it's sort of learning how to become a, a person. And I was thinking about that a lot. And then in my review for a Network Effect, a reader named um, Haypax commented, and this is a bit of a spoiler, that it's an ace or aromantic romantic suspense novel. Yes, and I so, saw that. Oh, you did see that? Yeah, okay. I saw the comment. So did you, did you, what do you think about that? What do you hear most from fans about Murderbot um, and why they love the series? Um, well, first, I think uh, it might appeal to romance fans because, uh, well, the reason I read romance, uh, I don't read as much of it anymore just because I don't have a lot of time to read in general. So I try to stay in my field, but um, the, the emotional catharsis 
Yes. A lot of getting in touch with your emotions. Um, and I think Murderbot does that a lot. So I can see why that would appeal to even someone who's primarily a romance reader and doesn't, doesn't um, care for science fiction or fantasy that much. Uh, because there is that that feeling of exploring your emotions about different things and about people. Um, a lot of the emotions Murderbot is experiencing is about meeting these humans and, and just how it feels. So I, I can really see that. Um, and actually the thing with um, it being a, uh, an, a romantic, a gender romantic suspense novel is when I, I, when I actually first wrote artificial condition where art first appears uh, art was not even really a character in it. Um, I have to do a lot of um, rewriting within the series to um, to get started. Usually when I start a new novella, I usually write like ten to 20,000 words and end up like cutting back to 5,000 before I actually find the plot and, yeah. uh, and work it all out. So I was doing that with Artificial Condition and kind of that first initial run and the plot was different though. It sort of involved the, the mining colony and everything. But um, the part with, with where Murderbot meets art, I had realized that Murderbot needed to look more human and I needed a, a way for, for it to be able to do that. And that where it meets the friendly transport ship that, that, that lets it use the medical facility and helps it. That part was literally just like a paragraph of backstory and then as I was going on, I was thinking, you know, that paragraph of backstory is so much more interesting than what this plot I'm trying to do and trying to make work. And it's not working. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I really need that really needs to be on stage. It feels too hand wavy, you know, like I'm asking the reader to believe stuff that even I don't believe kind of. <laughs> so I went back and started back from the beginning of Murderbot, actually the first on the space station looking for a transport and then did it from there. And when they started to talk, art just came alive as a character. And it's so cool when that happens, when you kind of have a character sort of buried in the story. And when they actually come on stage, it's like, oh, this is going to be an important character. And the more I worked on it, the relationship between them became central to that story, not necessarily what was what Murderbot was finding out about its past on this on this moon, but um, that that relationship. And so after that was done and I was starting to work on the next one, I was really thinking about um, Murderbot's relationships with the other characters and thinking, it's like, I really feel like art is probably the love of Murderbot's life, even though that's not how they see it. No. But that this is a central, it's going to be a really important relationship. And in some ways it makes a lot more sense for Murderbot's most important relationship. I mean, it's most important relationship with a, with a human is Dr. Mensa. Mm-hmm. But with um, that, it would have a relationship with with another being who is more like it than a human is. Yes. So that's that's what. So, yeah, people who see it that way are, are pretty correct. That was what I was thinking about when I was writing it. And I didn't even see it until Haybax made that comment. And then I was sort of like being smacked right in the front of my face, like, boom. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> of course it is. I, I saw an interview that you did with N.K. Jemison um, on Crowdcast, and I think it was this was where you where you said this. Um, although, if I'm citing the wrong source, I'll figure it out and correct myself. That art grew up alongside one of the characters from Network Effect, and is effectively sort of like a really super powered older teenager. 
Am I reading yeah. that right? Yeah, it was not, it's not so much a teenager now, but it's like it, the, oh, excuse me, in my backstory for the university and how these ships develop, because art, actually, spoiler, art is not the only one. Um, the way they build their AIs, like mm-hmm. art, is they basically start them as babies and raise them uh, in a family setting. And this is to, this is to prevent, um, you know, the, kill all humans sort of AI that is much beloved in literature. Um, yeah. And so it was, uh, Art was raised with Iris basically as, as her sibling. And so it's not really quite a teenager. I would say Art in age is, it doesn't really compare to a human age. No. At this point, uh, it is a lot more experienced than Murderbot. I also love that their relationship is so much snarking at each other. <laughs> like they've learned that from the humans right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the funnest things to write. Oh, it's really fun to read, too. So I have questions from my Patreon community who are all also extremely excited about this interview. And uh, Malia asked me to ask you, because you mentioned a moment ago that you do you have read romance. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons that they love the Murderbot books is that they they give the same feelings as a really good romance novel. And there's some tropes at work in there, like there's forced proximity, kidnapping, enemies to friends to not quite lovers, but really symbiotically paired. And spoiler alert, secret baby. Um, <laughs> have you have you read many? Did you have tropes in mind while you were writing? Or is there a way in which romance has influenced your writing? I think they probably did influence my writing. Um, I didn't read much until um, college when I met a friend who's a really, uh, she's a librarian and she's a big romance fan along with mystery and science fiction fantasy and everything else. And she was recommending books to me. And I started, I didn't read um, Jane Austen, you know, until after college. And, you know, once you read Jane Austen, it's, you know, that's like the, the, the initial drug that I forget what's called the initial drug. The, the gateway drug. Yeah, the gateway drug. That's why. Yeah. And um, I read Georgia Tire. Um, and actually, it's funny. I never did like contemporary romances very much. It just didn't grab me. I really liked, I guess, because I was a fantasy fan, too. So I kind of liked the historicals and especially the Regency. Mm-hmm. I just love the Regency where they go to the they go to the assembly room and they have the gloves. And they have to pick out their clothes and and all the little details. I just love that, that kind of thing. I don't even know why. I guess I, ne- I didn't, I wasn't a kid that got to go to proms and stuff like that. So I guess that's where that comes from. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure it did influence me a lot. Um, that was kind of college and right afterward was very much a formative period in my writing. So, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff you read that you don't even, you can't really cite it as an influence, because, mm-hmm. but it just becomes part of your DNA as a writer. Yeah, I think of it as the crockpot in the back of my brain. Yes. It all goes in there and then like you know, a couple of years later, oh, well, that was an idea. Thank you, brain. That was pretty great. Yeah, it really is. And sometimes it's like I didn't even, I read Lord of the Rings when I was a kid and I didn't even realize how that had influenced me until the movies came out because I hadn't read it in a long, long time. And I was just thinking about the languages and the way the characters interact and how much of an influence it had been on me. Yep. So sometimes you just rediscover that stuff and realize, oh, yeah, this was this was a big thing for me. Pamela asked me to ask you, they wanted to know how Murderbot came to the decision to hack their governor module. Was it a single situation? Was it a series of events that led to, and I love this phrase, sentience overtaking obedience? 
Um, and she says, thank you so much for the chance to dig deeper into one of her favorite characters in series. That is a good phrase. Sentience overtaking obedience. Uh, Isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Um, basically, I see it as kind of a cumulative effect. Uh, even with the memory wipes, as Murderbot says in the book, the you know the memory wipes can't quite take away the organic memory mm -hmm. in the human neural tissue. Mm -hmm. So I see it as a look. Excuse me, <laughs> I can't say that at all. Cumulative <laughs> effect, and um, the also in the inciting incident was the incident in artificial condition that it finds mm -hmm. out about, mm -hmm. where basically a bad what was supposed to be an innocuous kind of trick by these, this one uh, mining group on another mining group. And it turned into a, that, but it was written wrong. And so the code caused this horrible incident. So basically a bad software download that it didn't have any control of caused it to do all these things. And just it's, it had already been out of control. It's, you know, it's not in its own control. It has to follow orders. It has to do all these things. But just that was really, I, it was kind of just the last straw, basically, when it realized that it, it um, I can't remember the exact wording. I think it tells us, I think it's in All Systems Red, where it basically got, uh, it got access to a, a set of code that it wasn't supposed to have access to that told it how to that with some research it was able to uh, figure out the governor module and, and um, disable it that was kind of that that was the inciting incident but yeah it was it was a, it was just like the buildup of everything happening and then getting this opportunity and reading pamela's question the idea of sentience overtaking obedience um, there's a, a sort of a running theme too of I am trapped in my body that mm -hmm. I am I am being forced to do things that I'm not in control of. Whether Murderbot is killing another sec unit and thinks for a minute, is it trapped in there? Does it know what's happening because it has a, a combat override module in it? Or um, Art sends it a clip says I'm trapped in my own body. Mm -hmm. There's a, a a sort of theme of of being trapped by obedience too that runs through the whole series. Trapped by obedience and also trapped by your own um, fears, I think, also. Yeah. And which basically for me is like adolescence. <laughs> so <laughs> it's so funny you say that. I keep thinking when I interact with my 14-year-old, I'm like, what would Murderbot say in this situation? Because I'm <laughs> sort of dealing with a very impulsive, curious being who really, really dislikes having feelings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that feeling of basically there are things I want to do and could do, but something is stopping me. And uh, for humans, that something is usually yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the metaphor I've been going for there. It's very illuminating, especially when cast against the degree to which corporations control movement in this world. Yes. Because um, that's not true in our contemporary environment whatsoever. Not at all. No, <laughs> mm, not, not at all. Do you ever look at the news and go, whoa, a lot. Okay. <laughs> I have a running joke with my husband where it's like, I hate being right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're right. Like every third day. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, Oh, that's happened. <laughs> you mentioned Mensa a few minutes ago and we know from the books why Murderbot likes Mensa. What does Mensa like about sec unit in addition to the, you know, kicking ass, saving her life type of thing. I think it's partly that, um, 
Well, at the beginning, I, I think she had a bit of the savior complex mm-hmm. that um, I want to save this person. I know what's I know what's right for them. And she grew out of that pretty quickly. Uh, that was one of the reasons why Murderbot had to leave at the end of the first book, because if Murderbot had stayed, the relationships would not have been the same. It would have been more dependent um, and they would have seen it as more dependent. Uh, mm-hmm. It wouldn't have had as much of a chance to grow. And I don't think the relationships would have flowered like the way they did. Um, it would have been like trading up to a nicer captor, basically. Uh, yeah. And not the equal thing they have going back and forth now. Um, and I think that her realizing that um, it was a much more complex identity than she had thought. And uh, that's what's pushed her to get to know it better. And also the fact that um, it came to um, the, when she was captured on an exit strategy and it comes to get her just that that's a real strong uh, emotional bond there. The fact that, mm-hmm. that someone was, I mean, it was free and clear. It could have left. It could have, you know, it didn't have any obligation to her. And then the fact that it came back and, and did this to rescue her that helped them form a really strong bond. And just the, um, oh, the fact, I think that she, she realizes she had a, the savior complex thing and it forgave her for that. Yeah. Or, uh, didn't blame her for it. That's part of it too. But I think it's, it's just the fact that in a lot of ways, I think they, they have that really close kind of intimate relationship of people who have gone through uh, life and death together and mm-hmm. that's let them, and it's let them, it's been a good foundation for a friendship of getting to know each other. And they've both been through really terrifying trauma that they had to experience alone. Yes. And also the fact that Murderbot, when she's, when she's back in uh, the preservation territory, Murderbot is in the, and to a lesser extent, the other people who were with her, the rest of her team, are the only ones who really understand what she went through. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fluency that they share that they can't really articulate to anyone else. Yeah, basically. One of the themes that I've also noticed is the theme of of sharing your name and being seen, like seeing having your face seen. And Mensa is one of the first characters who sees Secunit as an autonomous operating person because it talks to um, Bardwaj coming up the crater and is trying to get this person away from trauma while rescuing someone else. No, wait, I have that wrong? No, it's Valescu that it talks Valescu, carrying Bardwaj, talking to Valescu. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, it it demonstrates a, a thinking autonomy and caring, and Mensa's the first one to really see it. And I know you've talked about that this being the the one of the scenes you started with, it also sees it at its most vulnerable when Secunit is like plugged into recovery modules and is bleeding all over the floor and its armor's all over the place and it looks like it just exploded. And she's like, knock, knock, hi, can we talk? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she's, she sees Secunit in a, a place of great vulnerability, but also recognizes that it is an autonomous functioning person. Yes. Um, she makes, that's the kind of the, the thing that sets off the whole series is she makes yeah. that decision to go in and say, well, there really is a person under there. I, she kind of knew it intellectually because mm-hmm. she knew how sec units were made, but mm-hmm. she hadn't really nerved herself up to make the connection, make it, try to make a connection with it. Mm-hmm. And um, possibly because it's like, 
she couldn't tell, did it want to make a connection with her? And when she sees it, talk to Valescu like this, and she's like, I'm going to treat it as an, as basically another member of the team. That's the only thing I can do. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the right thing to do. And that's what, that's what that scene is about. And it's, it's a powerful thing to be seen and recognized. Yes, it really is. And Murderbot's not happy with it sometimes because in some ways it, it thinks it would prefer not to be. And I think a lot of us are that, you know, people who are shy or introverted, it's like you, <laughs> you kind of want to avoid that. But, yes. you know, even though you know it might be good for you in the long run. Can I, can I talk to you about a piece of fan art that I saw? Or do you not want to engage with the fan no, uh, creations? No, talk about fan art. Yeah. Okay. Because some, some writers don't want to engage at all with the, the fandom creations in response to something, which I totally get. I, um, I saw a piece of fan art today of an illustration of Murderbot in um, Exit Strategy where it's picking out clothes and it's like, well, I could wear a shirt and a turban and a captain and some <laughs> jackets. And it's basically a picture of Murderbot wearing all of the clothes all at yeah. once. Like, this I mean, is I great. I've seen that one. That's really good. <laughs> I, I was so pleased. I'm like, yes, A, I know that feeling as someone who gets really like exhausted by being around groups of people. 14 layers of clothes sounds great. <laughs> I also love that your vision of the future includes lots of sealable pockets. Yes. Well, I figure Thank you. traveling a lot, you know, you would need this. And I love that, you know, Murderbot walks around with guns built into its arms and the ability to maintain a connection and analysis of multiple streams of information. But it's like, I really like pockets. Can I have some more, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I identify with this on a very deep level. <laughs> so with Murderbot, uh, C. Howard wanted me to ask you, what was the process of developing Mur Murderbot's sort of inner voice? It's not quite human. It's clearly its own creature. What went into that and what did you consider when developing its voice? Um, when I'm starting um, a new story or, you know, anything, I um, getting the voice of the character is the most important part. Mm -hmm. it, it, to me, it literally doesn't matter if I know what's going to happen in a story or uh, or a novel, it's like, until I get that voice, it doesn't, you know, I can't really get very far into it. And with Murderbot, I decided, okay, it's got to be, um, it's got to be first person. Um, and just as soon as I started to write, that voice came. And just, um, I think one thing is I do have a lot of experience writing about uh, non-human characters after the books of the Raxura. So basically for about five years before this, I've been, I hadn't written any human characters. So that kind of helped too, is being able to kind of think about the physicality of the character and its experiences and really try to get that into the voice and not think about the character as human, think about it as, as whatever it is. But, um, which is a very convoluted way of saying, I don't know where that was. <laughs> um, I'm I'm a very sarcastic person. I can be a very sarcastic person. I try to restrain myself a lot. So uh, <laughs> sometimes my inner monologue is not very different from Murderbot, where it's just like, you know, um, why is everything so stupid? Um, so that's probably where I, it's just it's a lot of it's me, basically. So <laughs> I um I also do you ever, do you find yourself thinking in Murderbots? point of view sometimes? Um, 
not that I I would really distinguish. Murderbot's point of view and my point of view are often very are so close. So. Yeah. I, I recently came downstairs and my son had friends over. I'm like, oh, teenage humans. There they are. <laughs> and I thought, you know, Sarah, you are also a human. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but sometimes other humans just seem very different. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yes, they really do. And I, one of the ways I really interact with the, the story is to think about how much Murderbot's coming to understand humanity helps me understand humanity. It's messy. It's inconsistent. It's not communicating or it's not trying to communicate honestly like an actor is. An actor yeah. is trying to communicate authentically. Humans don't generally do that. Like this helps me a lot. Yeah. The thing that it, it's really starting to realize how different actually humans are from the ones on the screen. Like it knew that it almost saw the, the humans that it liked in its TV shows as almost like a completely different species from the one it had to enter the ones it had to interact with when it was still basically enslaved by the governor module. But these, the new it's new human friends. It starts to see more, I think more parallels to what it saw, the, the things that it liked in the, um, in the shows that it watched. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of having a, a team, the idea of having a group of friends that, that support you and all that kind of thing. And what is a family? What is a family? Yeah. Not just a source for unending drama, but also <laughs> other things. <laughs> now, going back to fandom and, and fan art, um, do you look at fan art and, and fan fiction of, of the Murderbot series? I don't look at fan fiction. I try to stay away from it. Um, Makes sense. Because I don't, since it's a, it's, it's, I, it's the series I'm currently writing. Of course. I still write more of. Uh, if it's a, if it's a series that's finished, I'll look at fan fiction, uh, particularly like wacky stuff and which I enjoy a lot and crossovers and that kind of thing and fusions and, and all that. I try to stay away from it, from Murderbot, again, unless it's super wacky, um, where it's obviously not going to have any, you know, it's not going to have influence my thinking or anything like that. Right. Um, yeah. But fan art, I love. I look at fan art a lot. Uh, oh, me too. Have you seen any pieces that you really, really liked? Oh, there's been a bunch. Um, there's a person who did an animation. Um, oh, with his arms coming out to the yes, side? Oh, I love so that one. Cool. And there's been some other different, just the, how different all the portrayals are. And Faith Aaron Hicks did some, posted some on Twitter. That was really gorgeous. And I, you know, I've seen ones where the where the person is illustrating the books kind of in different scenes from the books. Um, so it's interesting to see the different interpretations of all the characters. And sometimes if I get it on Twitter, I'll, I'll reboot, I'll reboot the <laughs> reblog it. <laughs> yeah. I'll reblog it. And then um, the, the one thing that irritates me though, is every time I reblog it, somebody will go, Oh, that's what Murderbot looks like. I thought it was. No! And it's like, no, that's not how it works. This is an artist's interpretation, you know, and it, that's kind of frustrating and having to explain that over and over again, that just because I've reblogged something isn't, you know, the definitive version of it. Well, I mean, Murderbot really doesn't describe itself at all. Well, it yeah. describes the, the, the skin and hair and, you know, the, the height and the style of different characters. It's like, oh, well, I have hair yeah, <laughs> and I have eyebrows. I don't like either thing. There is a, there is going, I can't really talk about it yet because it hasn't been announced, but there is going to be some art uh, coming Ooh. up that is um, the artist. I did tell the artist what, how I saw Murderbot. Ooh. 
actors. So that's going to be um, a much more definitive version of what my looks like. Vibrating in my chair right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen the fan art of of Rathi, um modeling Perihelion's uh, uh, under undergarments? No. <laughs> It's Rathi standing with its with his back turned, sort of posing in a pair of very small blue undergarments. And I think it says perihelion on the back of the waistband. <laughs> oh gosh, it's so great because it gets that sort of Rick Rothy sort of um saucy, you know, almost impudent style. It's so great. I need to see that immediately. <laughs> I can I can pull up a link and try to send it to you. It's wonderful. Yes, that would be great. But one of the things I love um, about the fan art and the fan response is the way that, like you said, people interpret what Murderbot looks like because there's no real description. It's this sort of open-ended um, exploration. And the absence of gender and Murderbot's insistence on the absence of gender is really interesting. It's it's almost liberating for people to engage with that element of its character. Have you noticed that as well? Yes. Um, I think I think a lot of people do feel that same way. It's it's liberating. Um and also, it's just, uh, it's another part of, um, I think, asserting its identity as a person, if not a human. On Tumblr, I reached out to someone to get permission to, to ask you about this. Hannah said I could use this part of their Tumblr post. Um, that Murderbot is often very concerned with something eating its humans. Yes. <laughs> Quote, Murderbot's a little hung up on humans being eaten in a way that makes it sound like either this has happened a lot or has happened a few times or it was particularly traumatic when it did. Things look like they want to eat its humans. Humans wander where they're not meant to and then they get themselves eaten. Its uneaten client ratio is high. It stops <laughs> watching a show when mutants eat one of the leads, which would have been prevented if they'd had a sec unit. Did something eat Murderbot's humans? I haven't um, really <laughs> written that story yet, but it's just, I think it's um, a combination of the fact that humans don't have, uh, or uh, humans who are not augmented don't have metal parts. So right. they seem like they're more eatable. <laughs> than... <laughs> so it's kind of like, I think it's like, you know, your, your dog is small, so you're worried about it falling into, into something like the, the, the drain in the street, even though this is, you know, the chances of this happening are like under 1%. Yeah. It still worries you. So I think yes. it, in some ways it's kind of one of those things. And another, it's it's just the idea, the the action adventure stuff that Murderbot watches is, you know, has a lot of that of humans going to strange planets and being attacked by the whatever fauna lives there. Um, so I think that that's combinations. And also, yeah, it may have happened um you know, enough in the past that it does worry about it. <laughs> Humans, they're so vulnerable and crunchy. Gosh. So vulnerable and crunchy. Also, Murderbot's fear of ending up alone on a planet. So yeah. It's like there's there's um, there's a lot of little elements there that could tie into one really probably horrible story of stuff that happened in the past. Well, I know, I know it, it that Murderbot mentioned that it um, – it had done a full chart of all of the things that had happened to them and ranked them in order of severity. Yes. I mean, okay, I, I get it. But, you know, there's a point when the data is going to start making you bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's bummed out already. It's but... true. Yes, the depression, anxiety, or side effects. <laughs> so is Murderbot more of an unreliable nar narrator of emotions of other people or of itself? Or does it sort of bounce back and forth? I think it's uh, it's 
it, it can be a very unreliable narrator of itself. And sometimes it works it out where we'll say something and then kind of think about it and finally get to a more honest version of that comment. Mm-hmm. But also it tends to go into the, it, it does the thing of, well, that didn't bother me at all. No, it didn't. It didn't bother me at all. <laughs> and I'm not mad. No, uh-uh. I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not upset. Um, and so it's very much an unreliable narrator in that way, but I kind of try to give clues when it is being unreliable. Oh yeah. Like, um, the fact that, um, Thiago doesn't trust it. That's yeah. fine. It doesn't have to. It's fine. Yes. It gets really obsessed with that for a while. Uh, and it's like Thiago is uneasy at first, but he's not quite as much against it as, as it thinks he is. Yeah. But it's because Murderbot is, is operating from the perspective of, well, Thiago doesn't like me. Thiago doesn't trust me. Um, everything that Thiago does is therefore going to be interpreted through that lens. And yeah. it doesn't see its own lenses influencing its, its conclusions. Yes. That's an important part of the character. Your publicist, Lauren Anesta mentioned that you're very much into the untamed. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> How many times have you watched it? I watched, uh, I watched it all the way through the first time. And then I've watched sections again. And I actually got to see um, a friend in person, you know, a couple of friends in person. And we, uh, and she was in the middle of it. So I watched a section with her while Ooh. we were together. And um, it's kind of, it kind of became my, san- well, it kind of became my san- sanctuary moon for a while because I had not been able to uh, write since, uh, I guess, probably since the quarantine started, maybe in March. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to write and just not getting anywhere. And it was getting really frustrating because um, I'm usually, I don't write every day, uh, but probably four or five days a week I do write. Um, and just that was really starting to wear me down. And I was literally, I was, I was reading, but it was like, um, my imagination, kind of the way, you know, they talk about writers needing to fill the well. My well was just not getting filled. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was a pretty, it was a pretty bleak time back in March. It's not much less bleak now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like the, it was just getting bleak, but I think I'm more used to the bleakness now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it was really starting to, um, you know, bother me a lot. And then I saw the I saw the advertisement for the Untamed on Netflix and thought and and people had been talking about it kind of in my periphery of people I know in fandom and and everything and I was like oh, I'll just I'll give this a shot and then started it and it was like this is pretty good <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like I, I watched a couple episodes and then a couple episodes the next day and then went back to it and then suddenly it was like ten episodes a day <laughs> you know, yeah that's you start out going, there's 50 episodes of this thing. That's a lot. And then like a little bit into it, you're like, there's only 30 episodes left. Is that enough time? <laughs> Not nearly enough time to do everything Not here. <laughs> you know, I haven't actually seen the two follow-up movies yet because I'm kind of saving them. Um, yep. And also I know one will probably be pretty sad. So uh, I, I, I'm kind of holding off on that. But uh, yeah, I've really gotten into it. And the thing it did... Um, it really kind of broke my creative block and it gave my brain something to chew on. That wasn't how awful everything was. 
And that kind of got me started, you know, writing again and playing with different ideas and everything. So that it really helped me a lot. And it's a great sort of mental playground because of all of the layers of text and subtext that are being presented visually. Yes. Um, and actually, it's it's funny when I um, when I watch it again, I see so much stuff. It's like I watched it very carefully the first time, but then there's so much to it. It really rewards rewatching. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is because I'm not having to read the subtitles as closely. Actually, I went and from Netflix, I went to a, someone recommended another an Asian streaming service that actually had better subtitles. So I actually went and watched it on that. Ooh, but uh, yeah, it's called Vicky. I don't know if we want to do a commercial, but it's. <laughs> Uh, it's V-I-K-I, and it's, um, and it's like free on, you can get it free, and, or you can pay and get a um, better version. Yeah, it's like when I when I'm, was watching it the first time, I'm reading the subtitles so closely, and then when I watch it again, I can actually watch the performances and the backgrounds better and kind of see the actors and everything. The acting is so brilliant. Um, it, really, it really brings out the layers in the characters' interactions so well. Is a lot of expression work, too. Yes. It wouldn't be, uh, I think, anywhere near as good without the acting and, and with the actor's ability to really show what the characters are feeling. Because so much of it is, a, you know, it's epic fantasy and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a supernatural mystery, but it's also a romance is the, mm-hmm. really the core of it. And they really get yes. that across. And it's also, yes. parts of it are so funny. <laughs> Now, I know that in the Murderbot universe, all of the television shows and serials that it watches have analogs to real shows. Like I know Sanctuary Moon, you've said, is how to get away with murder. Um, what would Murderbot think of The Untamed? And is there going to be an analog in the Murderbot verse for The Untamed in a future um, book? I'm sure there will. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in the Murderbot book, I'm sure that I'm sure that will creep in there. Um, uh, I think it would love it because it's that kind of show where there's like... Um, even though it, the romance is distant enough that it wouldn't have to uh, engage with that. And the fact mm-hmm. that there's no sex. Yeah. Basically it would love that. Um, being able to see people being friend, being really good friends and, and loving each other without having to worry about having to fast forward through any icky bits where it sees skin. Uh, right. I probably love the fact that everyone is, is in their clothes the whole time. <laughs> It's like really big clothes, massive clothes. clothes. Like, you know, you might glimpse someone's collarbone and it gets very exciting for a second, but you know, that <laughs> almost like a historical romance. <gasps> yeah. Ankle. I saw an ankle. An ankle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. So I think it would like it a lot. It also seems like you've almost um, predicted a show like the untamed in American in American media presence because all of the show that all of the shows that Murderbot watches are epic multi hundred episode serials never ending and, and then you look at something like the untamed and a lot of American audiences like hold the phone 50 episodes I don't have that kind of time surprise we all have that kind of time oh I know I have a friend who got it she got into it and she went through it in a weekend what it's like there's more episodes than there are hours in the weekend. How did you do that? I guess she started on Friday night or something. But or they discovered time travel. Yeah. <laughs> She's got one of those time turners. I'm just gonna rewind this hour, watch the next one. But it's I think it's it's it really shows how just when so much stuff is just wearing you down in reality, being able to step into this other world. Um yes. which is not, you know, it's not a um 
a comfortable world. It's not a nice world, but it's so absorbing and the relationships are so close. I was trying to explain like a joke to my husband that was online about it. And I was like, okay, this is the part where the characters have to go live in a magically evil mass grave for like a year. And he looked at me <laughs> and I went, it does sound bad, isn't it? It doesn't sound fun, but it's fun. Yeah. There's all these humans and they live in this world where corporations literally own everything about them, but they still manage to find happiness. Yes, but it's fun. <laughs> Can you tell us anything about Fugitive Telemetry? Oh, it's a prequel to Network Effect. It is not another novel. It's a novella. Yes. Um, so it's under 40,000 words. It's a long novella. It's, I think it's like 38 or 39,000 words. It's kind of just under the limit. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's set on Preservation Station not long after Murderbot has arrived uh, with Mensa and everybody for the first time. And it's kind of basically Murderbot getting used to preservation and preservation getting used to Murderbot. Um, there's conflict basically with station security um, kind of being like horrified that there's this, you know, living murder machine <laughs> now on yeah. the station. And um, the reason I wrote it actually is there's a, a bit in network effect, not to be too spoilery where, um, Murderbot prevents, it's basically a flashback of Murderbot preventing an assassination attempt on Dr. Mensa. Yeah. And it works pretty closely with station security to do that. And I kind of realized I need to show how that relationship built up. And so that's uh, what, what kind of generated fugitive telemetry. And um, I wanted, and I ended up with Murderbot basically ending up helping uh, solve a murder mystery. Since it's preservation, they don't have, <clears throat> excuse me, preservation doesn't have a ton of crime anyway, and especially not on the station. And so the station security is mostly kind of a safety patrol um, doing like cargo uh, rules enforcement and environmental enforcement and that kind of thing. So when they mm -hmm. get a murder, you know, an actual kind of classic murder mystery, they don't know very much about how to handle it. And so, and Murderbot has to come in and help them and they don't like that. And Murderbot doesn't particularly like it either. And so that's what fugitive telemetry is about. Right. Because in Network Effect, there's a scene where the head of security like shoes Murderbot towards medical. Let's go. Like, that's not a thing humans normally do to Murderbot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, and I kind of realized that's, that's the scene as I envisioned it. And I thought, yeah, I really need to. And it's really interesting. And I really needed to go through and show how that relationship developed. This more casual, trusting relationship that they have. Yeah. And and it's a... a a relationship that indicates professional respect and competence. Yes. Like this is a, this is, a, these are humans who I see as competent. I can trust them to, to do the things that need to be done. Yeah. And I, and I just wanted to show how that developed and um, I had fun writing it too. I like murder mysteries. Well, there's, there's several of them in the series. Yeah. People keep dying. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, I've always been a big mystery fan too. Uh, oh Yeah. And and you have the unreliable perspective of Murderbot, and then you have the people who aren't telling the truth, and it has to figure things out. It's yeah. it's a it's it's delicious. Thank you. <laughs> now I um I always ask people what books are you reading that you might want to tell people about, but I know that you've said you aren't reading very much. So if you don't have any, that is totally okay. No, I've been um I've been reading a little bit. I'm reading um uh, Kate Elliott's uh, uh, Unconquerable Sun, which is her new space opera, the first volume of her new space opera. That's really good. Um, 
I read, um, I'm not sure if this is, I'm pronouncing the name right. It's Ni Vo, N-G-H-I, The Empress of Salt and Fortune, which was brilliant. It's a novelette that just packs the whole punch of an entire epic fantasy. And uh, there's another book coming out. Um, uh, I think it's When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain. That's, again, it's another novelette. Um, it's just brilliant. Um, I'm reading a lot of stuff um, earlier in the year. Um, I read this series of books called Murderbot like six times. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read them? <laughs> I just bought something called uh, The Hidden Moon by Jeannie Lynn. Looked really good. Oh, it's so good. Oh, really? Yeah. Holy it's a, cow. A mystery, historical mystery. It's like, yeah. Um, Jeannie Lynn is really good. Oh, Drowned Country by Emily Tesh. That's the sequel to Silver in the Wood. Yes. And uh, Andrea Hairston's new book. Master of Poisons by Andrea Hairston. It's um, she's written fantasy. It's her first epic fantasy. Um, really brilliant. I think that's coming out in in October, maybe. Absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous book. Uh, the Relentless Moon by Mary Robinette Kowal. Um, that was that's 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 got another big mystery. It's part of the the Lady Astronaut series. It's um, wonderful. Yes, it's wonderful. And I love the mystery element in it. We're basically solving, you know, kind of a thriller espionage mystery on the moon. Also, there's a writer I like called Ovidia Yu. Um, mm-hmm. Her most recent is the Mimosa Tree Mystery. These are, uh, she's got two series. One's historical mysteries set in um, uh, early Singapore uh, uh, with the British occupied Singapore. And uh, the other is a modern day uh, mystery series set in Singapore. Those are really good. Gideon the Ninth. I really love that book. I reread Har- uh, Harrow the Ninth um, recently because the, they had sent me the manuscript of it when Gideon came out. So I'd read it like a year ago and um, wanted to reread it in preparation for the next book. Uh, that's a really exciting series. Uh, and all of the things you've mentioned are books that you really escape into the world. They're very absorbing. Yes. Also like Suzanne Palmer has two books out in a space opera series. The, the latest one was Driving the Deep. I really enjoyed that. And it's more of a kind of hardish space opera, but it was really good. And Zen Cho's new book, The Order of the Pure Moon, Reflected in Water. Um, that was, I really enjoyed that. Uh, fan, another fantasy kind of um, wuxia, if I'm saying that right, inspired fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her work. I think I've read everything she's written so far. Um, and it's just, I've just loved every bit of it. Yeah. My entire uh, reviewing team came to a dead stop when someone said, there's a new Zen Cho book. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone to the internet right now. It's like, this is not a drill. Yes. You must go, 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 go. <laughs> yeah. I just love, I just love her books. So can I ask what you're working on right now? Or is that not um, not available for public discussion yet? Yeah, it's not it's not available yet because um, I'm still it's still in its early stages and I'm really afraid it'll die on the vine. And I get it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I hate to talk about stuff and be enthusiastic about it. And then people are like, oh, where did that where did that go? And is it when is that gonna come out? And you're like, it's not. <laughs> it died. So so you're working on the Murderbot musical uh, yeah. for Broadway. <laughs> for Broadway, yes, right. Now I'm picturing Murderbot watching a musical like, wow. (laughs) A lot of humans singing right now. Yeah, And yet it loves human drama. 
Yeah, um, I think I think it would be okay with musicals. You know, as long as there as long as there was no skin. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, no, nobody having sex on stage. I think it would be okay. Yeah, I think that in terms of the sentience overtaking obedience, not having to constantly monitor all the humans all the time, whether it liked it or not, is it must have been great relief. Yeah, so just kind of let them wander off and do whatever. <laughs> like, oh, it's fine. I don't have to care about what you're doing. Great. <laughs> Stacy asked me to say, please let Martha Wells know how, gr- how grateful I am for sharing this part of her brain with the world. <laughs> And Angie said, please know that you are an incredible writer and that I am so grateful for the Murderbot books that broke me out of the reading slump to end all reading slumps in 2020. And you are getting people through 2020. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Myself, especially. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I, I just really appreciate hearing that. It does it, you know, because you write when you write a lot of times you're just alone in your own head and mm-hmm. it's very hard to see <laughs> if what you're doing matters or not or makes any difference to people so that's just it it just i so appreciate hearing that if you are thinking right this moment oh my gosh she mentioned so many books and i didn't have a chance to write them all down fear not they're going to be in the show notes i wrote them all down for you you can find the list at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast you'll also find links to where you can find martha wells online and information about a Murderbot boxed set that is coming out very soon. Yay! I want to thank the Patreon community for their enthusiasm and their support for this episode, and to Pamela, Malia, C. Howard, Hannah, Stacy, and Angie, and many others for questions and great amounts of enthusiasm. After I recorded this interview, I think I was floating around my house for about four hours, and I hope that this was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. I always end every episode with an absolutely dreadful joke. And this week is no different. Now, I can't remember if I've told this joke before, and I've searched my archives, and I can't be sure. So if you've heard this one before, please feel free to email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com and tell me I've already told you this one. But I'm pretty sure I haven't. You ready? Okay. How do you console a grammarian after a very bad day? There, there, there. Get it? There, there. They are there, 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 there. <laughs> I love grammar jokes. Now, if I've told you that one before and you're now annoyed, please feel free to email me. And if you have a bad joke that you want to tell me, even better, esbjpodcast at gmail.com or Sarah with an H at smartpitchestrashybooks.com. Either way, the email gets to me and I love your terrible jokes. On behalf of myself and Wilbur, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find outstanding podcasts to listen to and subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. <laughs>